This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 75, and we are recording on April 4th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Greetings! Hello! It's Tuesday, and I have Moana songs stuck in my head. You have what? Moana songs, songs from the oh, Moana the movie. I have thought you, you seen said it? the thong song, no, which is God, entirely different. Well, okay, now I'm going to have that stuck in my head, in addition to Disney songs, which is like a whole level of weird. I was like, all right, Tuesday, after dark, I guess. <laughs> She got dumps like a truck. I think. Oh, my God. Now they're, like, melding together in my head, and it's terrible. I still haven't seen Moana, oh and my I'm God. ashamed. You have, to, you have to go see it. or it's, it's You can borrow it from iTunes now. Like, it's it's, oh. on, your, it's on your TV if you have that. Um, it's so well, good. Well, that's great. It's I wanted so to good. take my kids to see it, um, yeah. but I'm unsure of how my children, who are just recently six will behave in a theater yeah. for two hours. So. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it's great. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda did yes. music and sang in a couple of the songs, actually. Um, and the guy from Flight of the Concords, uh, Jermaine, what's his face? Yes. Is one of the bad guys. He does the voice of this giant bad crab. It's amazing. Um, anyway. Okay, enough of my movie reviews. <laughs> Um, this is the Get Booked Podcast, and it is a reading recommendations show, I promise. Uh, so what that means is you send us questions, and we answer them. Uh, you can send us all kinds of reading questions. What should your book club read? What should you get for your mom for her birthday? What should you read now that you've finished X title and it has left a hole in your heart? Uh, any of those things and any other reading requests, we are here to help. You can send us your uh, reading recommendation requests either through email, uh, getbooked at bookriot.com. You can drop them into the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for every episode. If you do have a time-sensitive question, please leave the date you need the answer by either in the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form so that we will see it and hopefully get to it in time. If I think we're not going to get to it in time or your question has been sitting there for a while and I don't want to make you wait any longer or we've had a similar question, uh, I will email you some recommendations. Um, so that you are not waiting forever and ever. And I think that is all of the housekeeping, yes? Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, so we're going to do our, I'm going to read our first question, then Amanda's going to tell us about our first sponsor, and then we're going to launch right into our picks. So the first question comes from Juniper, who says, There is a trope in fan fiction called hurt slash comfort. As the name implies, it involves one character getting injured or ill and needing care from another character. There's something about those power dynamics that pushes my buttons, especially if the hurt character is someone who is normally physically and or mentally strong rather than a quote-unquote princess who always needs saving. If you have suggestions for novels that are action-packed and or and include hurt, comfort, mortal danger, angst, etc., I would be delighted. They can have a romantic element or not, and straight or LGBT are both welcome. All right. Okay. 
Um, so before we get into our answers for that question, we're going to do our first, our first sponsor, which is a romance novel, which is exciting. Uh, it's called Only a Mistress Will Do. It's by Jenna Jackson. And this is a historical romance about a woman named Violet who is in kind of dire circumstances. Um, her family has all passed away. She has no money. And so she forced, she's like essentially forced to go work at a brothel. Like she just finds herself on the steps of a brothel. She's just going to put her head down and do the thing and try to survive. Um, so she like, kind of steals herself for her first customer. And lo and behold, instead of doing what is expected of him, he takes her out of the brothel, like kind of saves her from her circumstances. Um, so of course she's very grateful and she admires him. He turns out to be a Viscount, um, named Trevor, Viscount Trevor. Uh, but she, uh, knows that she can't, you know, nothing can happen between them because he's engaged. And so as romance novels, as historical romance novels, especially do you bounce back and forth between the two perspectives. So the Viscount, his name is Tristan, Tristan Trevor, that's the name for you, um, is engaged and he has gone to this brothel as like his last hurrah kind of before he becomes a married man and has to settle down. Um, and then he recognizes Violet, like he walks into the room and recognizes her and is, becomes determined to, you know, take her out of that place instead of uh, what he originally went there for. <laughs> and so he sets her up in his mistress's house, like he sets her up as his mistress just to give her a place to live until she figures out what she wants to do. But there's no touching. It's like mistress and name only. Um, and so she is trying to get her life back together. She wants to find a respectable job um, or like as a, you know, a, a governess or something like that, um, or find a nice man to marry. And of course the two of them have several interactions and, um, shenanigans ensue <laughs> <laughs> a fake mistress only for a short period of time <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so the book turns a lot of the um like arranged marriage tropes kind of on their head it's a cinderella story um and it's also a second chance romance if uh, which is a familiar uh romance uh, trope uh, trope in the romance genre and rags to riches also um so do go check that out only a mistress will do by jenna jackson thank you for sponsoring the show all right. So hurt slash comfort. This was such an interesting question. It's I like know. so specific. I didn't and really... I, I don't know. I've, I don't read. I, I've never read fan fiction for no other reason other than I just haven't. Um, and so I had never heard of this trope before. And so I had to take this to the Book Riot Back channels because, I don't know, shruggy face. Um, and one of our contributors, I think it was Angel, recommended Lost Stars by Claudia Gray, which is a Star Wars novel. And I got so interested in reading the synopsis of it that I went out and got it from the library and I'm like halfway through it. So, and I'm loving it so much. So, um, it is, so yeah, start over. So it's a Star Wars novel that starts before the first movie in the original trilogy. And then the events of the book move through all three of the original trilogy, uh, all three books in the original trilogy. And these are about side characters. It's not about like, Han Solo or anything like that. So you're uh, following these two kids um, who have grown up on a, a planet. It's called Jaluka, and it's like f way out on the far flung edges of the Empire. Um, and they have grown up under the Empire, basically, and want to join the Imperial forces. Both of the characters, it's a little girl and a little boy um, who come from like opposite sides of the tracks in this planet. Uh, both of them want to be fighter pilots. Like this is their greatest desire in life. And so they bond over that. They become best, best friends. And then eventually they fall in love. Um, but while all of that is happening, 
their politics start to diverge. They go to the Imperial Academy, um, and then while they watch the way that the Empire runs their government, one of the characters joins the Rebel Alliance, and the other one becomes a really high-ranking officer in the Empire. So it's very star-crossed. Um, there's that hurt comfort thing has a lot of manifestations uh, in the book. The female character is super, super strong, very headstrong, um, and it's you know, action, there's action and angst and all of that. Uh, I've never read a Star Wars novel before, so I'm not going to say you have, you have to have like read any of the other books because I haven't, and I'm following along fine. I will say if you haven't seen the, the original trilogy, you might be a little lost. So caveat to that. So that's Lost Stars by Claudia Gray. You should also read Bloodline, which is like, <laughs> it's a Leia story, like right after the third of the original trilogy, mm-hmm. which is technically number six, I guess, whatever. Um, it's so good. Bloodline is great. It's really, really, yeah, I liked it a lot. I put a picture of this up on my Instagram account when I got it from the library and was like, okay, here we go. Star Wars books. <laughs> and all of the comments were like, Claudia Gray is bae. She's go really read good. Yeah, she is. She's really good. Um, it's funny. I had, I didn't realize there was a name for this, but like when you think about all of the World War II novels about like, you know, the English soldier getting nursed by the mm. whoever, you know, European <laughs> nurse by the, <laughs> by the, you know, the in, insert European nurse here. Um, it's like the same thing, which is so interesting. I had not thought of it as like a distinct trope, but of course fan fiction is on top of that. Um, and then I was like, surely I have read like a thousand books that have this in it, but then I couldn't think of them. And so <laughs> I I have one pick for you. I feel like I should have like a thousand more, but the one I'm going to um, tell you about is the one I just read, which was one, it came up during the contributor discussion of this, and it is Hawk Song by Amelia Atwater Rhodes, which is the first in a series, so there is more. Um, I guess it's like technically like middle grader YA. I mean, it's, they do it, so or they're like gonna do it by the end of the book so so whatever um but it reminded me a little bit of the Atlanta books and that like it you know they start out a little younger than they get a little older but anyway okay so it's it's about um these two sort of different humanoid species there's the like shapeshifter they're shapeshifters and so Danica is from uh the avians and she can turn into a hawk and then um zane is from the serpentii and he can turn into a snake and they've been fighting each other forever there's all of these this long long history of grudges they're like are terrible battles um and they are both the like next in line to rule their uh people and um and of course they have been raised to hate each other they don't know anything about anything real about each other like they've been raised to like consider the other species like completely evil from you know the get-go um but then they have this encounter at a at a sort of some other the tigers are trying to negotiate a truce and they meet and then it, they're like, are, can they get married and maybe end the war? But nobody wants that to happen, but they're thinking about it. And then um, Danica keeps getting stabbed, like, throughout the book. <laughs> she gets stabbed a lot. Um, and Zane ends up having to protect her in several, or, or, like, nurse her back to health in several of these situations. So it is a little bit like she's a princess and she does get hurt and she has to be protected by the guy. But there's so many other things going on and Danica is such a strong character that didn't feel cliche to me when I was reading it um and I don't know I really enjoyed it like it really the book is basically 100% this this hurt comfort trope and it's the first in the series which I am gonna have to look at um other ones and it was the school library journal best book of the year I guess they came out in like 
the early 2000s? I, don't, I can't believe I had never read them before. Anyway, Hawk Song by Amelia Atwater Rhodes. I think you will dig it. All right. Question two is from Aaron, who says, I've listened to the podcast from the beginning, and I've heard you answer a lot of questions about specific genres or issues. Since I read all genres, I want to open it up for you and ask, what are a couple of books that are absolute must-reads that you think a high percentage of readers have not read? I love this question. <laughs> I, I love an opportunity <laughs> to like shove books in people's faces, which I'm sure surprises you since I have a podcast Shocking, for. shocking. <laughs> anyway, so my pick for this is The Q by Basma Abdelaziz, and this came out last year from uh, Melville House, which is a great independent press that I really like. Um, it's only got 118 reviews on Goodreads, which is really a very small number, and most people that I talk to haven't even heard of it, let alone read it, but I loved it. Um, so it's an Orwellian very Orwellian, really short novel um, about um, like a modern Egypt. It takes place in an unnamed city after the, a fictionalized version of the Arab Spring. So all of the characters in the book are gathered around the gate, uh, which is like a literal gate that opens up into the authoritarian regime's government building. Um, and this is right after a failed pop- populist uprising uh, has been quashed by the government. And all of the citizens are now required to get permission from the gate in order to do just the most basic things in life. Get a job, move, drive a car, um, get basic health care, find child care, all of these sorts of go to school, that sort of thing. Um, so the line is getting longer and longer. The problem is what makes this really Orwellian and also very Kafkaesque at the same time is that the gate never opens. So it's this like comedic bureaucratic hell set against um, an authoritarian regime that is constantly watching its citizens and is extremely violent. Um, So you follow a a really mixed cast of characters as they essentially move into the line outside of the gate. Um, And and the main character is, uh, his name is Tarek. No, no, no. Uh, Tarek is the doctor. I can't remember the name of the main character, hashtag always. Um, But he was shot during the uprising and is waiting permission, waiting for permission from the gate in order to have the bullet removed from his body. But um, the government has that kind of, you know, doublespeak Kellyanne Conway alternative facts thing happening and denies that the uprising ever happened in the first place. So he can't have been shot because there was no event for him to get shot during. So despite the fact that he's like standing there in line bleeding, they will not give him permission to have the bullet removed from his body. And so he is struggling with that, obviously. And then he encounters a doctor who has a lot of you know, principles and obviously wants to help this person because it's his job, but he, if he does it, he'll get arrested and tortured. So there's like that moral complexity. Anyway, it's just like, it's obviously very relevant to things that are going on both overseas and in the U S. Um, it's really well written. It's, I read it in like a sitting and kind of like broke out into a cold sweat. Um, and it's, it's just an odd kind of dystopia. It's a lot of people call it science fiction, but nothing sciencey or, or even really that fictitious, uh, happens, but it is, um, an interesting take on the dystopian genre. So that's The Q by Basma Abdelaziz. Co-sign that one. Mm, so good. So good. weird. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> very, very weird. Okay. Um, yes, thank you for the opening, uh, the, the blank check. Um, so... <laughs> 
I picked a book that I just finished reading, and the recommendation originally came from Nisi Shal, who spoke at Book Riot Live last year, and we did a series of interviews on the blog, um, on the Book Riot Live blog, that she, I asked every author to pick um, another author that they wished people would read, or a book they wish people would read, and she picked Mama Day. So it's been on my list since then. So Mama Day by Gloria Naylor is... Wow, it's an amazing book, and I am so excited that I can tell you about it, but also so sad that so few people have read it. So this is your like invitation to join me in marveling at how good this book is. Um, it's about uh, two generations of women it, it, in the present day. I like I say that it's it is it is a novel that contains multiple generations, but most of the story takes place in one time period. So it's not like spanning several lifetimes. It's just that it refers back to things that happened several generations ago. Um, and the main character Coco uh, is her nickname. She is the niece of these to um, this very formidable woman who lives on an island called Willow Springs, which is like off the coast of Georgia and North Carolina and doesn't technically belong to either. So, and the people who live there are descendants of um, a, 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 a plantation owner and his slave who, his female slave who got him to deed the land to her sons. Um, and so they have lived there for forever. They're kind of like autonomous. It's a very small town, um, very like, you know, internally clicky and everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's business. So Coco goes off to New York City to like, you know, find a job and a husband and get away from all of that. Um, and the book uh, follows her in her quest to like find a husband. She finds a guy and brings him home. And then and but it's a magical realism novel. So all of this crazy stuff uh, happens throughout the course of the book that like some of it's pretty legit and then some of it you're like, I don't what? Um <laughs> in the best possible way. And it is so emotional. Like I finished this book and I was like just kind of wrecked for a whole day. It was really intense. I cannot tell you why, because it's very spoilery. But um if you are looking for it, a lot of people ask for books that have, like, the place as character, and Willow Springs has so much character. Um, I know a lot of you do like elements of magic in your fiction, and this is really good. Um, it's an amazing book by a black woman about black women, so that's incredible. I mean, there's just so many reasons that everybody should read this book, um, including that Nisi Shaw, who is also amazing, recommended it. So so that is Mama Day by Gloria Naylor. Excuse me, Gloria Naylor. Everyone go read it. Okay. Next question is from Anonymous, and it says, So here's kind of an oddball feminist mom issue. I have been very conscious of making sure my son has books that show girls and women as heroes and main characters, and now that we're starting to read chapter books together, I realize they pretty much all have been about girls. I'd love some recommendations of beginning chapter books with boy main characters who get up to fun adventures. Girl-centered books uh, we've enjoyed are Princess in Black, Dory Phantasmagory, and Mercy Watson. Um, also, he's a little bit freaked out by monsters slash dragons, so he'd prefer books without any freaky creatures. Thanks so much for your help in raising a woke feminist little man. Very cute. I've been talking for a minute, so Amanda, you go. Okay. Come sit by me. <laughs> this mom needs to come to my house. Um, same. Like I have had the same, uh, sort of thing and with my boys and have gone searching for the same kinds of books. Um, 
you mentioned bonus points if they pass the bachelor test and if the characters are multicultural. And so I think uh, my recent favorite or recent favorite of my kids who were six uh, and have just started getting into uh, chapter books is The Mysterious Moonstone by Eric Looper. And this is the first book in a series uh, called The Key Hunters series. And they're really fun, uh, like Sherlock Holmesy style mysteries uh, set uh, for, you know, little kids because they're chapter books and these have two main characters cleo and evan a girl and a boy uh evan is african-american so there's some multiculturalism happening and it's just super fun they go like in the mysterious moonstone which is the first one they go back in time um is it back in time no they get stuck in a book that's right i can't i couldn't remember which one it was they um like portal fantasy style uh get transported into a book uh which is a sherlock holmes era kind of thing except without instead of Sherlock you've got like a a 16 year old boy detective and instead of a Watson you have a dog named Watson who is his buddy so they both go into the book and back in time into the Sherlock era period of like Victorian England and they are in a mansion where a moonstone a really really large diamond has gone missing every member of the family is a suspect and they have to help uh, Archie, the detective who is on the case, solved the crime. Uh, there's no monsters or anything like that. I think in the second book, there are like really dangerous sharks, but there's, there's no dragons or any sort of supernatural monster thing happening. Um, and the, both of the characters are really smart uh, in different ways. One of them is really good at math. One of them is really good at like English and wordplay. Um, so there's really something for every like kid here, uh, along with just like adventures. And it's great. So that's The Mysterious Moonstone by Eric Luber. This was hard for me because most of the books that I enjoy and also that my nephews enjoy are, like, full of aliens and dragons and (laughs) monsters, and so it was really hard. Um, But then I remembered Flat Stanley, uh, which has been, like, updated a lot. So the Flat Stanley series um, by Jeff Brown and Scott Nash... um, is about a boy named Stanley Lambchop who wakes up one morning to find out that a bulletin board fell on him during the night and now he is flat. He's only half an inch thick. Um, And so he proceeds to have all these adventures that you can only have if you are, like, two-dimensional, basically. Um, He gets to, like, fly like a kite and he helps catch art thieves because that's what you do when you're flat, it turns out. Um, And it's the first in a whole series of books. Um, And so I thought those might be fun and also like an opportunity to talk about like dimensions in space, like, cause you know, never going to give up a learning opportunity. Right. Um, So yes. So that is the flat Stanley series uh, by Jeff Brown. All right. Question four. Uh, let's see. In June, I'm heading to the national parks out of Vegas, the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Bryce Canyon, and Zion, plus New Orleans. Do you have any book recs for some pre-trip reading and for my long flight from Melbourne to the U.S.? Okay, I picked The Hour of the Land by Terry Tempest-Williams. The subtitle is A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. Um, and so this is part memoir, part, like, environmental history, um, national history or natural history rather, and then like also some social policy critique all combined into one thing. So she's doing an overarching look at America's national parks. She spends some time talking specifically about like the Grand Tetons, which are in Wyoming and Acadia Park in Maine um, and a couple others. I don't remember which ones, but she's examining mostly the national park spaces as a whole and what 
we went through as a nation to like develop them and our impact, uh, the impact of our policy of like establishing the national parks and maintaining the national parks on those areas of land. Um, but it's also very much about like what national parks mean to the American spirit and how these wide open wild spaces are really, um, very like American concept, uh, and how, as time has gone on, we are getting less and less um, publicly concerned with maintaining the national parks, but po- like the attendance is still 300 million people visit the national parks in the U.S. every year. Um, so obviously, as a country, we like still crave that wildness and that outdoor space and that unplugging, but um, our, our environmental policies and destructive um, consumerist habits uh, tell another story, basically. So um, it's really kind of a love letter, especially her personal love letter to America's National Parks. Terry Tempest Williams writes a lot of nature books and has a you know, deep personal connection to these spaces. Um, so I think it would be a nice thing to read when you're about to go into these spaces. So that's The Hour of the Land by Terry Tempest Williams. Terry forever. So much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I picked a book for you that is not about national parks per se, but it is about the desert and all of the places you're going are desert parks. So uh, it is Desert Notes by Barry Lopez. And this is a book that I first came across when I was a bookseller in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we sold just like a bajillion copies of it, which is weird because it's not a major publisher. It's a little hard to find, but it's a really great book. Um, It's a short story collection, and Lopez's prose is very sort of surreal and dreamy. So it's like, you know, you're out in the desert, you're kind of wandering around, and like maybe you're a little dehydrated and disoriented. Like that's what it's like to read this book. Um... But he has a real feel for sort of that feeling of being in the desert and why it's special and important and unlike being in any other kind of geography. Uh, So I thought it would be a good compliment Um, and also like a good plane book because, you know, when you're on a plane, like sometimes things are a little dreamy and weird anyway. So that's at least that's my experience of flying. Um, So I thought it would be a good fit. So that is Desert Notes, Reflections in the Eye of a Raven by Barry Lopez. And let's see. Uh, Oh, it's time for our second sponsor already. Look at that. Uh, Which is, oh, it's not me, but I'm going to tell you about it. It's the Baker Street Four uh, by, it's got several people who it is by. Where are their names? (laughs) J.B. Gian and Olivier Legrand are the authors. And David Etienne is the artist. And I'm looking at it, and it is very nice, you guys. So what it is is a graphic novel about the Baker Street Irregulars, which is one of my favorite things of Sherlock Holmesian lore. Um, it's the Irregulars. I love the Irregulars. And um, in this case, they're four young boys in London. It's got like a little bit of a Newsies feel to it. Like they've got their little hats um, and their little like side bags. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Okay. I'm getting sidetracked. Uh, so yeah, and then so, we lost Jen and then to we the lost advertising. Jen forever. Um, <laughs> sorry. So it's about, it's about three boys, Billy, Charlie, and Tom. Um, and they are sort of street kids and they are helping, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes solve crimes. And then Tom's girlfriend gets kidnapped. So they have to go solve their own mystery. Um, and then there is somebody who gets framed for being Jack the Ripper and they have to find out the truth about that. And it's got all of these uh, different adventures that they go on, which is very 
very fun and exciting. So if you love Sherlock Holmes, if you like um, stories about street kids in history, um, I don't think you need to know all of the things about Sherlock Holmes to enjoy this. It's just really fun, like, historical London hijinks with, you know, boys. Uh, who doesn't like that? And the art is beautiful. I really love the style of this art. It's very nice. So that is The Baker Street Four by J.B. Gian Olivier Legrand and art by David Etienne. And um, thank you so much for sponsoring the show. Okay. So our next question is me. Okay, here we go. Uh, it's from Autumn who says, I am friends with two sisters that will be recognizing the first anniversary of their brother's death this year. It's been a rough year for both of them in regards to other issues. When their brother passed, I gave them tiny beautiful things and they both loved and appreciated it. I know that another book has been recommended before that is similar, but I'm unable to find it. Please recommend any books that may help with grief. We all appreciated the way tiny beautiful things allowed and validated all the feelings. It's such a good way, such a good way to describe that book. Like it really does allow and validate the feelings. Um, So I'm just going to keep talking since here I am. And um, the pick, I was trying to think of what you might have heard us talk about before. And it occurred to me that The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion also has a lot of allowing and validating the feelings. So that is what I am recommending. Um, Sort of, it's a memoir. Um, Joan Didion is uh, an amazing classic writer. Um, But this is about her and her husband seeing their daughter fall ill. And then uh, her, (coughs) excuse me. After her daughter falls ill, um, her husband suffers a a massive coronary. Um, So this is, you know, about her having been through one, one situation involving, you know, medical issues with family and then a a completely unexpected one. Um, So there's a lot of things going on in here. She's talking about, you know, what it's like to be afraid of losing a child and then what it's like to be afraid of losing a spouse. Um, It's about, you know, memory, like thinking about them in the past versus in the present um, and just about how you live through that. So I think that this might have a lot of things that they could relate to. Um, And it's just an, I mean, she's an incredible writer. She is just really, really good at, you know, pulling the the perfect kernel of the emotion and putting it into words. So that is The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Okay, I went with Grief is a Thing with Feathers by Max Porter, which is actually a novel, well, novella? It's like 100 pages. It's very short. Um, and I didn't know if fiction was necessarily what you were looking for, but it so perfectly handles um, grief, especially grief when you've lost somebody prematurely, uh, like somebody who was young, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So it's a about a, a father uh, who's like a, a scholar of Ted Hughes and uh, has two boys. Um, they live in London and his wife has died unexpectedly in an accident. So he is suddenly a, a widower. His boys suddenly have no mother and they are dealing with their newfound grief in their own ways. So the chapters go back and forth between the perspectives of the two boys, the dad, and then also a character called the crow, which is just the weirdest. It's so weird and beautiful and weird. And I don't know how else to describe it, but um, the crow is like this embodiment of the universe's insufferable angst, I guess. Like, I don't know how else to describe it, who comes into this home and babysits this newly grieving family. Um, and the crow speaks from the first person and has says stuff about how like he's not interested in humans except when they're grieving because those are their, our only honest moments. 
And he stays with them for weeks and months as the as the family kind of gets back to or not get back gets back to but finds their new normal and the pain of losing a loved one becomes less physical and more uh, about like memories and they start to heal and come together and learn how to function as a threesome in a house without a mother or a wife to care for them and it's just it's really touching and heartbreaking and strange and like otherworldly um and kind of brilliant i don't know i I was looking for less of like a how to get over the loss of a person you loved and more of something that would like, this is a human feeling, this thing that you're going through, even though it's been a year, um, you know, it's still okay to feel the way that you do. And I think the book, this little book really does express that very well. So that's Grief is the Thing with Feathers by Max Porter. Okay, it probably me. Yep. Okay, uh, this is from Lauren, who says, Over the past few years, I've come to develop an affinity for poetry, something I never thought I'd enjoy. Favorites have included Ann Carson, Mary Oliver, Warson Shire, uh, Prelude to a Bruise by Saeed Jones, Bluets by Maggie Nelson, Milk and Honey by Rupi Kapoor, uh, Night Sky with Exit Wounds. That's a really good one. Uh, and she names a few more. Uh, Langston Hughes and uh, Seamus? Seamus. Seamus Heaney. Heaney? Heaney. Whoa. Heaney. Seamus Heaney. Also, it's Ruby Cower. Just a quick note. Um, Thank you. No problem. What she said. What she said. Um, We're reading Loves of Mine before I expanded my horizons with more poetry, and I still adore them both. With all of that, what are some poetry, uh, what's some poetry, contemporary or classic that I'm missing out on? More poets that will further my love of poetry. Okay. um, I'll just keep going. My pick for you is Bestiary by Donica Kelly, which came out last year from Grey Wolf, which just as a side note, Grey Wolf consistently puts out amazing poetry collections. So if you just like go to their website and click on a collection of poems, you're going to find something to like. Um, But I really, really enjoy this one. It came out in November or October of last year. And it's about dealing with the inner, like, you know, your inner life and pain. And um, Donica Kelly writes about like sexual assaults and body image and all sorts of things that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, but told from the perspective of like through this lens of animalia, like whales and ostriches and there's a, there's a centaur and griffins and all of these existing and imaginary animals that she uses to dissect her life and the lives of pretty much everybody else on the planet. They're really, really beautiful and very accessible. Um, So I think that, if you, you're, you don't say that you're new to poetry, but it's a thing that you're not, you've just recently come to love. I think this is a really good pick for that. So that's Bestiary by Donica Kelly. All right. I am recommending Camille T. Dungy, uh, who I recently discovered because I was reading a galley of her essay collection, which comes out in June called Guidebook to Relative Strangers. And I am much more likely to pick up an essay like essay collection by a poet than a poetry book by a poet, which is, I know, I'm terrible. But um, after reading her essays, I then went looking for her poetry, and she is amazing. Um, So I think you could really probably pick up any of her works, but I thought you might start with Smith Blue, because that's the one I find that most of my favorite poets, uh, poems of hers are from. Um, And she is great because she writes a lot about nature as well as about, you know, people and feelings, um, which are the, you know, usual material of poetry. Um, But you mentioned a couple of poets who, you know, I think... um, 
I, 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 like Ann Carson is a favorite of mine, and that sort of dreamy surrealness. Like Dungey is a little more concrete, but she has the sharpness that I find in Ann Carson. Um, and anyway, I just I think you'll love her. I really don't think you can go wrong with any of her collections. But again, I think I might start with Smith Blue. Um, and yeah, if for people looking for really amazing essay collections, Guidebook to Relative Strangers, which comes out in June, is definitely going to be worth your time. Um, so yes, Camille T. Denji. Read her. She's great. All right. Question seven is from Anonymous, uh, who says, up until recently, I was one of quote unquote, those people when it came to romance (laughs) novels. Um, and then I found uh, I fell down the Courtney Milan rabbit hole and devoured both her Turner and Brother Sinister series and have seen the error of my ways. Yes, <laughs> welcome, welcome. Courtney Milan <laughs> is so great. I love her. <laughs> okay, question continues. I really enjoyed the feminist aspect of these books and I would like to read more like them. But as I am a complete romance novice, I have no idea where to start looking. I think I would prefer recommendations of the historical type, but I'm not turning. Com- contemporary romance ones down. Uh, So I'm just going to keep talking because I'm so excited to tell you (laughs) about An Extraordinary Union by Alyssa Colt, which just came out like a week ago. Did you read it yet, Amanda? I just got it from my library. Uh, I was the first, I was number one on the whole list and I was so excited. Winner, winner. (laughs) I know, you won. Um, It's so good. It's so, so good. So what it is, is it's a historical novel set during the Civil War about a black woman who is a former slave who has an eidetic memory. Uh, She's got, like, she can remember everything, basically. Um, And she was, when she was freed as a young girl, she was, like, trotted around as an example of, like, look, like, black people are people who can have great mental skills in support of the abolitionist cause, um, which has both, like, which was good and bad, because, yeah. Um, And so, (laughs) and now she's grown, and she is a spy um, for the Union Army, which is amazing. And while she is on this mission, she ends up falling for a man who is a detective for Pinkerton's Secret Service, so another spy. Um, And they are both down in Virginia trying to, like, find out the heart of this plot that's happening. Uh, So, and uh, Malcolm, who is the other spy, is a white man. And so, and he's been posing as a confederate. So there's all of these layers of complications. Like, normally in romance, you know, there are obstacles. And like, whoa, hello, there are obstacles for these two. (laughs) So many obstacles, um, both personal and, like, historical and political. But I really, I thought she did such a good job of, like, picking, teasing those apart and, like, finding the ways through for the characters without dismissing anything. Um, I mean, Alyssa Cole is great, and I've been reading her for years now, and I love her work, but this book is just amazing. So that is An Extraordinary Union, which is the first in the series, God bless, um, by Alyssa Cole. Okay, my pick for you is My Fair Concubine by Jeannie Lin, which takes place during the Tang Dynasty, um, and I love this so much. So the hero in this book, his name is Fei Long, and he is a nobleman. Um, he's been away from his family for a long time and then his father dies and so he comes back to like run you know the whatever not castle that's not right um property sure uh (laughs) whatever uh and when he comes home like everything is in a shambles his father has left um left the estate in a lot of debt like bill collectors are knocking on the door and what's worse his sister has disappeared she's eloped with the neighbor which is not good because she was promised to like a border country's um leader as a way of mollifying these 
potential invaders. And it was like a very political, purposeful political union. So Faye is just like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? He fought, he like tracks them down. He tracks his sister and her new husband down and finds them. Um, and then feels really badly about forcing her to like travel thousands of miles from her home and marry someone she doesn't love. So he lets them go. And he is in this pickle now because he has to like provide a bride for this political marriage. Um, and while he's in this tea house contemplating his future and mumbling about how he needs a woman, the tea servant girl overhears him, thinks she's talking to her, thinks he's talking to her, like propositioning her, and she throws the tea at him. So she gets fired and is like walking out, you know, to go beg and like figure out how to live her life. So she's walking down the road and he realizes like he can take this girl and pretend that she is his sister and train like train her to be a noblewoman and give her a future since it's kind of his fault that she got fired um and so he proposes this plan to her and she agrees because she doesn't have any other options so she goes to his home and gets starts to like undergo training for how to be a noblewoman and in the meanwhile of course they fall in love but they can't get married because she has to go marry this political guy like how many brides are we going to go through before this poor guy can get can get a wife you know um and so there's like com- it's just, it's so many complications there's class problems and uh, barriers and political barriers and all this stuff um both of the characters are really really proud so there's an added layer of like well i don't want you anyway on every page which is amazing they've got really great romantic tension um and i really love this uh historical setting uh because it's um not i just one i wasn't particularly familiar with when i started reading jenny lynn's novel she's got a whole series of tang dynasty historical romances that are just so great so that's my fair concubine by jenny lynn i have read others in that series and loved it but now i, I did not realize that the first one was like a twisted my fair lady like what mm. i'm gonna mm-hmm. have to pick that up sooner <laughs> rather than later that's amazing All right, question eight. My brother, who's about to finish medical school, just finished When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, and asked me if I knew any similar books that are, in his words, quote, kind of discussing death and facing mortality and whatnot, end quote. I recommended Being Mortal by Otoga one day, but drew a blank beyond that. He would obviously be drawn to stories by or about those in the medical profession, but I think he'd like anything that deals philosophically with life, death, and mortality. Okay, my selection is Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory by Caitlin Doughty. This is a memoir um, by Caitlin Doughty, obviously, uh, about her time working in a crematorium. So when she was 20, she graduated with a degree in medieval history, which was ultimately useless. And as someone with a history degree, I feel your pain. Um, And so she took a job at a crematory, sort of out of a combination of like morbid curiosity and also you're hiring. So I will accept this position. Um, And so she kind of ends up sort of loving it, which is a strange word to use to describe a job spent burning dead bodies. Um, And this is all about, it's like a behind the scenes look both at what happens to your body when you're cremated and what it's like to work in a crematory, but also how American capitalism has kind of warped both our, um, our death industry to like, not to put too fine a point on it and how we interact with the end of our lives in general. So it's a lot about, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of working there. Um, But there's a, a really it's an interesting look at the philo- the philosophy of death and how we handle death and the funeral industry and all of those sorts of things. And near the end of the book, Caitlin leaves to go start her own um, funeral home, and she's doing death in like an entirely different way. She's and now she has like this company. I think it's called the Good Death, uh, where like she will take bodies and put it out in nature 
and just let what happens to you happen. Like it's all very strange and interesting and, and really thought provoking. I, as many people who were young, haven't hadn't like thought about what I would do with myself once I died. So I thought a lot about it after reading this book. And it's there's a, I listened to it on audio. She's a great narrator um, of the book. The author narrates it, but some of it is like. If you have kids in the car, there are chapters about like what happens to fat when it burns in a crematory and that were maybe not appropriate. So just to warn you, if you're an audiobook listener, be aware of your surroundings. I'm just saying. So that smoke gets in your eyes and other lessons from the crematory by Caitlin Dowdy. <laughs> Interesting. Super gross. Um, I, super, so gross. I was like, <laughs> it's like Mary Rochi in that way. Like yes, it's yes. Uh, very factual and also gross. Um, excellent. Okay. Well, I picked... Less gross in theory? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I picked Knocking on Heaven's Door by Katie Butler, which is – so Katie Butler is a journalist, and she um, was living really far from her parents when she found out that her father, who was 79 at the time, had a stroke um, that left him basically crippled, like really unable to care for mm-hmm. himself or communicate well or anything like that. Um, and so uh, so they figured that, you know, he – he was this was it like he was going to die and then he got a pacemaker but he didn't fix anything else so he um was still living but then he was developing dementia and he was almost blind and he was miserable and um and the family was really struggling with this and then um on top of it her mother ha- was facing an illness of her own. So, so Butler, you know, is, is not only trying to deal with how her family is, um, approaching death, but because she's a journalist, she starts researching like medical intervention and the American way of death and why we do things the way that we do. Um, so she's asking really hard questions based on her own experiences about like, why do we do certain medical procedures on people who are, you know, facing potentially, you know, the end of their lives? Um, why, why do we do, what is the, you know, system of near death, you know, intervention that we have put in place? How did it get there? Why do we continue doing the things that we do? Um, and so she's asking all of these questions and trying to figure it out, um, in both for our, like in general and then in the specifics of her own life. So it's not a medical professional, but she's dealing a lot with the medical profession is why I'm recommending this. Cause I thought it might be interesting for him to see something from sort of the patient's side view. Um, because you know, when you're a doctor, like the goal is to preserve life right? Like that's the end of the sentence. Um, but for some other people, it may perhaps seem like that is not what is the appropriate response. So this is, uh, it's about the medical system. It's about our personal decisions with aging family members. It's about what our aging family members should or should not be able to choose to do. Um, lots of big, difficult, complicated questions, but she does a good job of examining them. Uh, and so that is Knocking on Heaven's Door by Katie Butler. And that's our show. Uh, thank you so much. There's a lot of death in this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, it happens sometimes. That, that was our theme for today. You're welcome. Um, so thank you so much for listening. If you have a chance to leave us a review on iTunes, it is always greatly appreciated. We love hearing your feedback, and it also helps other people to find the show. Thank you so much to our sponsors, um, and thanks to you for listening. You can find us on social media. I'm Jen IRL, Jen with two N's IRL, and Amanda is I'm Amanda Nelson, and we will talk to you next time.